This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. Before we get into today's episode, a couple of resources that I'd like to share with you. The first one is the book that I helped Dr. Garth Davis write. It's called Proteinaholic, and I would love for you to buy it, to buy it for friends, to blog about it, share it on social media, and even leave an Amazon review if you feel like it. That will help us spread the word and get the message out there that we really don't need to be obsessed about protein, that it's almost impossible to be protein deficient on a healthy diet, meaning a plant-based diet, and that we are suffering as a society from what we can only call protein toxicity, way more protein than we could ever use, and it's making us sick. So again, the book is Proteinaholic. Second thing is, if you know someone or if you yourself are struggling with your health, and you'd like someone to hold your hand and lead you out of the medical mill and into true wellness, that's what I do for a living. I have a practice at trianglebewell.com, and I consult with people. I help you with the research if you have a particular condition. And if you decide that lifestyle change is going to be a part of your treatment, then I help you with that as well. I do individual coaching, group coaching, and classes both local and online. So if you are struggling with health or you don't know where to turn or you feel like you've been pushed around like a pinball in the medical system from one doctor to another, from a specialist to another specialist, and nobody hears you, nobody listens to your story, and everyone is just looking at a fragment, then give me a call. You can visit me at howard at trianglebewell.com or hj at plantyourself.com. Both of those will work, and we'd be ha- I'd be happy to set up a time to have a chat and see if there's a way for us to work together. Now on to today's episode. My guest, Samantha Carrie Johnson, the first thing that got me about her is that she's a reality TV star. She is one of the guest coaches on the MTV show Made, She also is a former Miss Pennsylvania and a Miss USA competitor. And whatever you think of of beauty pageants and and that whole world, if I had known that it was going to take a podcast to get me to talk to a beauty queen, I would have started podcasting in seventh grade. Seriously, Samantha is anything but shallow if, if part of your Um, assumptions about beauty queens is shallowness, as I have to admit it kind of was for me before I had the interview. Samantha is a fascinating human being. She's only 30, and she's already spent half of her life in the food industry. Uh, She attended a school that has a heavily animal agriculture base, and yet she has been plant-based. She's an outspoken proponent of the plant-based lifestyle. She's a personal chef. She's a consultant to restaurateurs and other people who want to make it financially in the plant-based world. And she is a strong advocate of organic farming, gardening, and bringing healthy produce to underserved communities. So you can see the beauty queen bit and the MTV bit are kind of the icing on the cake. So without further ado, Samantha Carrie Johnson, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. 
Yeah, so you're you've got a long list of accomplishments, of of kudos, and, and a lot of the stuff you're doing um, is really well outside of of my world, my understanding. A lot of it's kind of glamorous, so I want to make sure you know I'm not sort of <laughs> stuttering. Um, but we'll, we'll we'll get to all that. But let's let's just start by um, just talking about like what you're up to now, uh, as you as you say on your website, what you're about. Sure, sure. Um, well, I currently uh, work as a personal chef and consultant um, within the plant-based and whole foods, health-focused realm. I also am a writer and I also am a host and all within the plant-based, health-focused food realm. Gotcha. So I understand what a personal chef is. What, what does a plant-based consultant do? So I have 15 years experience half of my life um, in the restaurant industry, restaurant and hospitality industry. And with a lot of more, a lot of uh, businesses going into the direction of, you know, juice bars, plant-based cafes, a lot of these people going into that realm actually don't have the experience, mm. whether that is in the restaurant industry or just within the plant-based realm. And sometimes, you know, they're lucky enough to call on a consultant. And so I act as a consultant for those businesses doing that. Gotcha. So all those places that I pass and and I look in and I say, oh, my God, they have so many things I could eat. And I look inside and I go, oh, they're not going to make it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, there's there's a lot that goes into the restaurant industry. And uh a lot of times, you know, people go into it with these, you know, high goals and high expectations, but the restaurant industry is one of, is like one of the number one failing businesses, you know, to go into. Um, it's a really, it's a really tough ride and being plant-based and health-focused doesn't help. You know, a lot more people are going in that direction and that's amazing, but you really have to be smart and strategic before opening up a plant-based food business. Mm, I remember talking a, a year ago with someone who had become an ethical vegan, but at, mm -hmm. the, but at the same time was holding the reins of a restaurant that, if, if it had gone vegan, would have closed down within a week. And she was, yeah. she was really struggling with, you know, with, with the ethics of that, with the, with the strategies, which you like, try to fake people out and like, make fake things. It's, it's a hard thing to do, and especially if you're... Um, if you're if you're approaching it from an ethical or a mission perspective, I'm guessing that you can become a little blinded to some economic realities. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, especially on the ethical vegan side, um, it's it's tough. I mean, I don't, I don't, I mean, your ethics are failing at that point if you're still procuring meat, animal protein for a business that you know, gives you sustenance and monetary anyway. And, and then, but your core soul and spiritual beliefs are, are in complete contrast. They don't really match up. No. All right. Oh, that's great. Great stuff. I'm glad to hear there's people out there um, doing that. And especially, you know, someone like you with, with so much personal and family experience in, in restaurant, restaurant and hospitality. Yeah. So let's segue into into your story. I, I was uh, spending a lot of time on your website, SamanthaCarryJohnson.com, uh, looking over your bio. And so, you know, some of the things that caught my eye were you had a pretty serious illness as a teenager. I did. Um, I had a pituitary tumor 
Um, and so it's essentially a brain tumor. And I battled with that for about five years. And I had surgery just before I turned 20. So it's about 10 years out of that experience, which is amazing. I, you know, blinked an eye 10 years. Mm. Um, but it was, it was a, um, it was a pretty painful experience. Um, but I learned a lot about, you know, just my health and myself and, and listening to your body intuitively and knowing when something isn't right. And, um, and I'm, and I'm just fortunate to have gained that experience and come out of it successfully and, and being able to carry on further. But yeah, it was a pituitary tumor. Your pituitary gland controls the hormones in your body. Um, it's a part of your endocrine system. And so it's a serious thing. It's a very serious thing. Right. And I'm imagining for, you know, in addition to the health, health consequences, a 14-year-old girl with out-of-control hormones <laughs> must have been interesting. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, just getting to the to, to the nitty gritty of my of my symptoms is that um, I my my body was essentially acting as if it was pregnant, and of course, I hadn't even had my first kiss until I was twenty, so I, that was wildly so not even possible. But um, uh, yes, I mean, my breasts I was lactating basically. And I didn't have a period, so my body was acting as if I was pregnant because the the tumor was on my pituitary gland and produced a certain amount of um, hormonal, uh, you know, chemicals that made my body think that it was. So there was a lot going on, you know, and I didn't understand it, but I knew something wasn't right. So it's like I had my period as a kid, and then I didn't, I wasn't menstruating, so that was wrong. And then all of a sudden, I have breast milk. That's the crazy thing, you know, and... So time to go to the doctor. <laughs> you know something's wrong. Wow. And and was how did that affect your relationship with your body? Did it suddenly feel like you know something really alien that you couldn't count on anymore, or did you find strength? Like I'm I'm I'm, I'm really struggling to imagine to any extent what that must have been like. Yeah. Um, Surprisingly, no. I I definitely felt oneness with myself. Uh, there wasn't a detachment from from my body and, and questioning what it was. I actually was, you know, I, my grandfather was a physician, and um, and my and my aunt was actually the uh, doctor who she's she's a physician as well, and she's a uh, uh, GYN, OBGYN, and she actually was my mother's doctor when I was born, and she was actually the doctor who diagnosed me. So I was surrounded by people who said it very matter-of-factly, like, oh, yeah, you have a pituitary tumor in your head. And I was like, what? <laughs> At 14, I was so shocked. But, you know, coming from a medical family, it was a situation where I guess, you know, it's almost like when a kid falls, like don't react, otherwise they'll cry. Mm. You know, one of those things. So it's like, because they didn't react, I didn't react. Now I also could possibly just come from people who are very non-reactive emotionally. And I didn't pick up on that, but, but nonetheless, I think that because no one thought of it as a death sentence or something that was really going to inhibit my life, or at least didn't want me to carry on that emotional baggage, I didn't carry that on, and I just believed that I was going to be okay. I think also because although the tumor was there, it was non-malignant. Uh -huh. So it wasn't a cancerous tumor. It was just a tumor that was large, 
that was somewhat increasing in size and that over time was extremely painful and debilitating. But, um, but I also, you know, had that foundation of eating healthy. My mother's a chef. You know, my father had me eating, you know, raw food, juicing and brushing my teeth with baking soda when I was a kid. So I came from a health-focused background, although it wasn't strongly, of course. It was just a natural part of my life. So still being able to be connected with my body and knowing my health risks and uh, potential for, for anything was always just there. Gotcha. So how, how did that... Uh, incident play into your current, you know, plant-based lifestyle and advocacy? Did that uh, convince you of anything? Were you on that path anyway? Um, what led me more to my, uh, you know, plant-based vegan lifestyle was more so I, my connection to food growing up. Less of my health and just more of my love of food. And my love of all things like fresh and vibrant, you know, I don't know why. Um, I love, you know, like Southeast Asian is, I would say, like the baseline to the food that I prepare. Um, I grew up with all kinds of people around me and in my world and, and who were friends with my parents. But um, Southeast Asian food, just the vibrance of it, the texture, the color, the taste, the crispness. That to me is food. Like I love tasting living food. And that's like the, the essential component of raw food lifestyle, vegan lifestyle, raw food, vegan lifestyle. And, um, and that just always resonated with me. I never was attracted to meat. Although, you know, in my day, I loved a juicy, bloody steak. You know what I mean? I, I can't say that I didn't, you know, I absolutely did. But you know, it's like today I lean more toward ethics when it comes to the meat. Um, but also I, I just generally don't really have a taste for it anymore. I don't, I don't like food that, that is carcinogenic. You know what I mean? I don't like food that overcooked and, and doesn't really suit my body well. Right. Now, you, you, it looks like, kind of grew up in an environment in which certain types of meat were were encouraged, I guess, you know, I don't think any of the restaurants that your family was involved in were, were vegan, right? No, absolutely not. I mean, meat was definitely a part of my life. Not a strong part, but I mean, my mother is a Creole chef. I owned a Creole restaurant with her, but, and I can tell you, yeah, we had, you know, seafood gumbo on the menu. We had, uh, you know, a pork chop on the menu at one time. We may have had a steak. There was definitely components to the menu of the restaurant that I owned. Um, that was, that had me absolutely without a doubt. And that was just a reflection of, you know, the food culture and Creole cuisine. But in, uh, in the restaurant that I owned with my mother, I tried to skew it more, more farm to table, I think was the edge that I tried to kind of curtail and cultivate that fresher, vibrant edge to the, to the menu mm -hmm. and to the food that we served. And so it could be less dependent on meat because, you know, Southern cuisine is, is, heavily uh, focused on meat. I don't like pork. I never liked pork even when I was eating meat. Um, and, and pigs are smarter than dogs. So, no, I'm not okay with that, you know? Right. So Now, you, you went to W.B. Saul High School, which is, a, in, in certain circ circles, a really well-known um, agricultural high school. 
part part of yeah. the Pennsylvania public school system. And Pennsylvania, you know, is like you know Penn State, uh, one of the top ag schools in the country. I was looking at their website in preparation for this interview. They seem to be pretty livestock heavy. Did you find that challenging? Um, I didn't find it challenging. They, although they have a meat lab program, like a butchery program, for example, which I actually did have to take. Um, you know, as a as a thirteen year old, I learned how to break down a chicken properly as as a butcher would. But it isn't like it's the the animal husbandry um, programs at Saul High School where I attended. Um, uh, it's more so how to raise an animal, how to take care of an animal, per- permaculture, that kind of thing. Uh-huh. Not so much. Uh, but I'll be honest, I didn't go into that track. I mean, you have you have two ways to go, left or right. And I went the, I guess, right way for me, which um, was the plant, plant, uh, you know, horticulture track. Right. So, so the other track that you know is is really interesting. Um, is you're a, a beauty pageant contestant and big time winner. How how did you get into that? Uh, um, well, I studied film in college and throughout my entire life, I guess ever since I was five, six, seven, I was performing and acting and modeling. And that was my number one thing. That's what I always wanted to do and and be. And so went to college for film. I was supposed to go into a theater conservatory after college. And, you know, as life happens and parents being parents and whatever, you know, I, I just say everything happens for a reason. So I was supposed to go into a theater conservatory, I ended up not going, and then I had to troubleshoot my situation. And so a friend of mine competed in the Miss DC pageant a year before me, and I was like, well, she did it, I can do it. And so I did it, and I won. And it was as simple as that. I've never aspired to be a pageant girl. When I was a young kid and modeling, we definitely got a couple, you know, pageant pamphlets that were sent to the home, but my mom was like, no, you're not going to be a pageant girl. And so I didn't do pageants, you know, although I was interested, she said no. And so I said, okay. And I never thought about it since until, of course, I actually competed in one. So what was it about that first experience that made you say, I really like this? Um, well, what I really liked I enjoyed, well, I used to model. So being on stage and being in front of a camera and performing in a, in, a, in a sense, I was used to and I always enjoyed. But I didn't like the, I didn't like uh, the, the, I guess like um, fakeness, I don't know, I guess in pageantry. And I like being myself. You know, I like being real with people. I like being honest. I like people to be feel. I like people to feel relaxed when speaking with me because I want that from them. You know, uh, uh, and when I realized that I could be myself in front of the camera and use that platform of being Samantha Carey Johnson, Miss Pennsylvania, or just Samantha Carey Johnson, whoever I may be and become, is when I really started to like Miss Pennsylvania, and that's actually when I. Just I didn't really want to be an actress that much anymore. And, and there you go. Huh. So when you talk about the, you know, the fakeness, I think those of us who, who, who don't participate, who just sort of watch it and we see, you know, the, the national pageants or we, 
you know, watch Honey Boo Boo and, and stuff like that. You can get pretty negative impressions of of that industry. Um, what, you know, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how to, yeah. how to frame the question. I mean, you, it, seems, it seems given who you are now and the consciousness that I get from this conversation and from your website and from your work, that there's that there's something there's a fundamental disconnect in my mind between sort of the the basic premise of a pageant is sort of an objectification of of a of a woman's body and the work you do which is so deep and spiritual and healing i'm i'm just and i hope I'm, i hope this isn't an offensive question but oh, i'm, no, I'm wondering you know i'm i'm trying to figure out how to bridge bridge that in my mind right right well i mean to be honest there there Yes, the pageant world is extremely shallow, and there is nothing shallow about me. Um, however, in taking my business and my mission to the to the lengths and levels and heights that I wanted to, I mean, I have to stand on a public platform. And I started in entertainment. I started I started with being a person that was visual, um, visually accessible, is, is I guess maybe what I should say, and. Um, and I think, you know, there's always going to be a place for that. There's always going to be an industry for models. There's always going to be an industry for actors and actresses and singers and anyone in entertainment. And a part of me is still that. It's just that the things that I speak about are things that I care very deeply about, which are political, which are food-focused, which are health-oriented, which are um, moving to a lot of people, which are ethical. You know what I mean? All of these things. So it's like I just have these two dimensions of myself that I'm able to bridge the gap by way of just being an example. Mm. So, so it's almost that this, the, the visual accessibility, as you put it, is, uh, is a tool in your toolkit. Exactly. Just to speak, to speak to a, a culture that, that is trying, you're trying to rouse from a kind of shallow stupor. Yeah. <laughs> Quite frankly. Yeah. I mean, you asked me about the separation of my body and self and, and I feel like today, actually, in my oneness of self, or at least oneness within my spirituality, I feel more disconnected from my body than ever. Really? Say, say more about that. Well, I mean, just as you said, my body is a tool. You know what I mean? I, in my transition to being more plant-based and being more, you know, health-focused and less processed and all these things, I mean, I've been more aware of my external shell actually in this process. I've lost weight. I, you know, I'm not on, you know, uh, like I'm a, I'm a woman, you know, I, I live a chemical free life. I'm, I'm not on conventional birth control, which makes your hormones fluctuate. I've lost weight. You know, I've account, like I've taken note of that. There's a lot of things. There's a lot of pressure, you know, as being a woman and being someone who is in the public eye in whatever capacity, and also gets paid a living for looking a certain way. And then when you kind of retract from all of those things just in our general society that we're subjected to that have had a physical effect on your life and on your physicality that you didn't realize, but then you realize the, but then you're faced with the, I guess, the side effects of being not processed, you know, um, you, ju you just see changes, you know, and and even more so, you then see how you have to adjust to get to and what will reflect when you go back into that public eye or when you expose yourself in whatever capacity. So as I use my body or my physicality or my physical presence as a tool, 
to um, share my message with people, people see that and people see the difference in response to that. It's like you have to be healthy. You have to be in shape. You have to be fit. All those things. And then as you change from a process to an unprocessed life to a chemical to a chemical free life, you have to adjust to those changes and be, and be more diligent and be more focused and be more aggressive. Mm. Meaning that the, the sort of the purer you are, to use a word that I'm not crazy about, but uh, yeah. maybe fits here, the, the, the less you can tolerate. You know, yeah, so. absolutely. Less you can tolerate unless you're in, and the more you are um, sensitive to, sensitive to uh, physically and, and mentally and spiritually, absolutely. Right. And, you know, but not in a bad way. Well, we tend to th think of sensitivity in, in, you know, in one sense is a bad thing. Like, oh, she's so sensitive. And, you know, people, oh, you know, if you have a cookie, you'll break out. You're so sensitive. But imagine if the entire planet became that sensitive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it would be an incredible thing. If the entire planet became uh, so sensitive to the point where they actually feel the vibrations of, of, you know, they can read something and become emotional or actually want to do something about it. I mean, that's how things change. I mean, I am, I am, I mean, I'm a Scorpio, you know, like I'm a Scorpio by nature and, and we're very intuitive beings. And, and, you know, I think that's kind of like a baseline. I had it in me already to kind of be on this path, of course. But when you really do for anyone strip away those things that, that numb us from society or from our, our physical realm um, or even our spiritual emotional realm, we were just more in tune. So I want to I continue on this uh, question of, of these, you know, huge dichotomies. So another one that, that I'd like to ask you about is, so as you know, as a personal chef, you really um, to deal with the sort of high end of food, like food is, you know, delicious, uh, you know, farm fresh. And at the same time, you're really involved in food justice and anti hunger. And very often, those two groups are not talking to each other. Do you know what I mean? No. Yeah. That uh, absolutely. So, you know, how, how did you how did you come to each of those? Like, why I can say you know, I know lots of people who are really into fancy food, and a lot of people who are really into food justice, and you're into both. How did how did you how did you get there, and how do you navigate these two communities that very often don't don't intersect? Well, I mean, it's um, I think coming from. I mean, like, uh, my entertainment background, my professional background of owning a restaurant of being in that world, I mean, finding my place as an individual and having the fluidity to, um, connect with a lot of different people without necessarily having a brick and mortar space, personal chef for me was the way to go and consulting was the way to go. Um, and the thing is, yeah, people who can afford a personal chef are, yes, they're into fancy foods, they're into luxury items. But to be honest with you, the I, food culture across the board, no matter what your economic, socioeconomic basis or, or level of constraint or whatever you want to call it, because it's very constraining and confining, um, uh, a lot of people just tend to not be in the know of food, you know, good or, good or bad. I mean, uh, our culture today is that most people today just don't know what 
real food is, what good real food is, how to access it. It's just that if you have money, then you could access it a lot easier. Or you can just pay for someone to prepare for food for you, or you can just go to a restaurant and get what you like. You know, same thing with people who are on the lower end of that, of that totem pole, except the places that they go to are fast food restaurants. You know, and it just sucks for people all around. You know, people can be millionaires and still eat that special K, which is genetically modified cereal. You know, it's everyone is affected by this. Me, stepping into this lane, I'm able to bridge that gap between the two groups by way of speaking to my clients and my personal chef clients about real food culture as I prepare food for them. And, you know, just like on a very ground gorilla style level, invite them out to the organic farms that I volunteer, you know, and so that way they actually can help other people and they can be more involved. And if they have the money and the means to do so, maybe they can be more financially proactive to donate or benefit or help other people that can't help themselves. Mm. So on, on your website, you talk about you know, urban, urban farming programs, and you mentioned permaculture from, from your high school program. So five years ago, I think the, the words urban farming would have not made a blip on our consciousness. It seems like in the last couple of years, a lot of people have woken up to it from, uh, you know, the work of Will Allen um, in Milwaukee to um, you know, Ron Finley's guerrilla gardening in South Central L.A. What, do you, what have you seen over the last few years in terms of urban, gar- urban gardening, urban organic farming as a way of, of bridging that gap, of saying that people in urban settings, people who have often been traditionally disadvantaged, can actually produce food that's much higher quality than most Americans will eat? Yeah, I mean, it's it's absolutely magnificent. I'm so excited for what's happening. I mean, this, of course, was in my life, my entire life. You know, so for me to see other people who have quit their nine to five to start urban farming programs and to, you know, head up initiatives in their neighborhoods is, is incredible to me. And I'm, and I'm really uh, excited about the, it's like everything is happening. It may seem like it's slowly happening, but it's happening, you know, and I think that's the, you know, the exciting part because I'm, because I'm so curious to know how this is going to pan out another five years, you know. So when you do a lot of work with kids, right, in in school system, teaching them about Mm -hmm. healthy eating, what's that like? What, What are some, you know, a couple of stories about the impact, you know, things that surprise you and, and, and how that can be frustrating and rewarding? Um, well, it's all really rewarding, but the biggest thing is that across the board, socioeconomics aside, I mean, kids really are just kind of, you know, kids are kids. And kids, no matter what, are going to be open and receptive and curious and willing to eat healthy and, and have a healthy life because they want to, because that's just children by nature. You know, it's more so parents who push their habits, their lifestyle and their means onto, onto their children. Um, but yeah, I mean, you'll have kids who wake up and have to have ramen noodles and soda for breakfast because that's what their parents have access to or afford. But if a kid was given kale 
you know, sauteed kale and some quinoa for breakfast and like an avocado, they would eat that too. I know because I did, you know, because that's the kind of home that I grew up in, you know, but, uh, um, you know, kids, kids are open and, and kids are the future in, in any gener- generation. So, you know, me working with children and encouraging more programs in schools is, you know, and having those schools uh, maintain sustainable programs is, is the key for the success. Right. Now, you see, you, you clearly promote a, a plant-based diet, if not an exclusively vegan diet, then certainly very heavily, you know, whole plant foods, it seems like a lot of raw. And in our sort of school food culture, when we talk about, or just the popular culture around healthy food, people don't think that way. Right. So they'll, they'll talk about like a Mediterranean diet or a DASH diet or even, you know, paleo, which are all arguably, um, you know, big improvements over standard American. Uh, how do you navigate, you know, coming in and saying, well, this is a healthy way to live versus, you know, the typical like the American Heart Association, like two thirds of their recipes have meat in it? Right. I hit them with facts for every person that has something to tell me about why somebody needs a steak or throw some chicken in there. I hit people with straight facts. You know, I, there's, you know, like, uh, spirulina is more of a complete protein than a steak than beef. You know what I mean? That's a fact. You can't, I mean, of course you have to ingest more spirulina, more broccoli, more kale. You have to eat more of those things, but it's not more of a complete protein. You know what I mean? Chicken is not better than broccoli or, or, spinach or a spirulina, but it's what people are used to. It's like the idea of chewing it. You feel more full. You feel more satisfied. We're conditioned to think that it's better. My current um, client right now is an NFL football player, and I had to meet with his training uh, coaches and the nutritionist there. And, you know, they, you know, it's like I'm working for, we're working for the same person, but there's no way you can convince me that, you know, chicken's better than than a plant protein, mm. especially not the conventional kitchen that most people have access to, chicken. Right. So you see, you're working with an NFL player. Yes, I am. <laughs> so that that uh, that's unusual. I know of exactly one other NFL player um, who who adopted a plant based diet while, while playing. Tony Gonzalez. Uh, there, there, there may be others. I know you've uh, you have an association with Asante Samuel. Um, yeah, who it's, played it's for the not Eagles. Asante. And... Yeah, my my current player right now, his name is Eddie Lacy. He plays for the uh, Green Bay Packers. Um, Eddie's twenty five. He's going into his third year. His first year, he was like rookie of the year. I'm actually not that not that well versed in football, but he's an amazing person, and he was all the way gung ho and ready to eat, roll, or die, and be plant-based. I'm really proud of him. And, you know, he has some weight goals and just to be generally, um, you know, just more health-focused. And he is a really, really great uh, optimistic and um, uh, just, uh, you know, healthy candidate for for this lifestyle. I mean, he's a young guy. He's, He's willing to do it, and that's the first step. 
Wow. So did he come to it out of a desire for performance improvement or did he look at the stats of like how well NFL players fare post uh, <laughs> post career? No, I mean, right now, um, I mean, he's a super young guy, like in the prime or before his prime. I mean, he hasn't even reached his prime um, and he's an incredible player. He's super strong. And, um, no, I mean, he has some weight goals that he's trying to meet. And, of course, you know, there's nothing better than a whole food plant-based diet to keep you fit, you know, lean, and and encourage that muscle growth. I mean, everyone – I mean, there are plenty of vegan athletes, plenty, you know, and it's just – it's more of a psyche thing than anything else. But um, But once you get over that hurdle – then you're there and then you feel better. You feel lighter. You feel more clean. You feel just more positive and open and optimistic. And, and, um, and he's there. That's really cool. And, uh, so I know, you know, Asante Samuel is quite the activist, like someone who, you know, like you has taken, uh, things that the culture appreciates about him, you know, his, his, his athleticism, um, and really turned it into um, a, a lot of social advocacy. Um, do you do you see? You say you mentioned there's a lot of vegan athletes. Do you do you see a movement there like that? That can be a serious source of sort of you know culture slapping to to wake us up to the benefits. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, once again, with me and my physical presence and being that kind of carrot that you dangle so people can start to pay attention, like, oh, I like this girl. I like the way she looks. Um, she has a healthy body image. Oh, she just so happens to be plant-based. Well, then maybe I should be inspired to be plant-based, or maybe I am inspired, you know? And there is no way without, you know, there's no way that people won't be inspired by seeing more plant-based athletes out there to be plant-based themselves. Right. I remember uh, we lived in New Jersey. There was a family um, who had very strong religious views and they were pretty vocal in, in, in sharing them with us, <laughs> a neighbor down the street. And what I remember most is just how miserable they were. <laughs> you know, yeah. just, just and I thought, well, it's not surprising. <laughs> like, why? You know, if someone was like happy and and you know the kids were frolicking and they were you know doing well, but they were just miserable people. I was like, why would you know? What a bad advertisement. And so when I think when I see people who are, you know, who fit the cultural norms of of success and and desired values, whether it's you know financial or emotional or physical. You know, I think that those are the people who should be, you know, highlighting the lifestyle that ever that that will that will get you that. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's um, it's so holistic. You know what I mean? Like if you you have success, and a lot of people, of course, determine success by monetary um, uh, levels. Then you know, there's now, of course, not everyone who has a lot of money is a healthy person. But they're, but I'm sure they're regimented. I'm sure they're organized. You know what I mean? There's a lot that has to go into it. And, and a lot of those people eat a certain way, even if it may not be necessarily what they eat, but it's how they eat. It's just a matter of like having the, the right amount of meals per day, having your meals be balanced so you can think straight. You know what I mean? Kids don't do well in school who, you know, uh, eat poorly or don't eat at all before they get to school. 
Right. And I, I, I love that holistic outlook because there's, you know, there, there's always room for improvement in, in any one area. But very often people who, who, you know, like are extreme, like for me, I eat really, really well in terms of the, the quality of the food I eat. I'm less good about quantity, like I'll, I'll overeat or yeah. I'll eat unconsciously. And rather than trying to, you know, to go from 99.8% whole food plant-based to 100%, I should just like, you know, sit down, turn off the iPad and chew my food. Yeah. Like that, like, like that, that'll have a much bigger impact on, on my overall well-being. Absolutely. So another thing I want to ask you about is the, you're, you're a, uh, a coach on an MTV show called Made, which I guess is in its 14th season now. Yeah, it's been going a long time. How did you get that gig? Um, well, Made first came my way when I was Miss Pennsylvania. Um, you know, and I, of course, I'm still in the entertainment industry. I still have an agent, that kind of thing. And years ago, when I was still in Pennsylvania, or I think maybe had just come off a year later, they first, first approached me and wanted me to coach someone to be a beauty queen. And I said, no, I'm sorry. I just, you know, I just won't do it. Um, that's not what I want to share with people. I don't want to coach people to be beauty queens because I don't believe in it. You know, I don't believe in what being a beauty, the standard of what being a beauty queen stands for. Um, and, and, and they called you so, back later. And they called me back later. Yes. I, I think my personality and me just, you know, not really wanting to, you know, because, you know, it's like you have the casting process, they get to know you, they put you on camera, but then, you know, when the cameras are off, you still communicate, you still talk to people, you know, uh, the casting directors off camera and that thing. And, and I definitely, I would say that my off-camera connection with with the casting directors is what, you know, solidified me a place with MTV. Mm-hmm. So the, the 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 first one, I guess, was was working with uh, with a, a teenage boy who was kind of a a geek, and he wanted to be better at. Approaching girls, he wanted to like Sammy Almasri, yes. Become become a ladies' man. Uh, mm-hmm. What was your thought when they came back to you with that one? Was that was that did, did was you was that sort of an, an unconditional yes? I support this mission, or were, did you have reservations about that as well? No, I actually turned turned a couple things two two uh, two episode concepts down prior to that that were similar. Um, the timing, you know, worked out for me at the time. And I felt that based upon what the specifics were with the, with the circumstance of it being a ladies man and who the, who he was, I felt that I could really help him because it was, it was less about being a ladies man and just more about being a competent person. And that meant so much more to me, of course, than being a ladies' man. Hmm. But it's just about your presentation and how you interact with people and how you present yourself. And some people, you know, don't have that confidence, you know, on their sleeve. And I just had to help him pull it out a little bit. And so in the, your qualifications for that, in, in their eyes, it seemed to be, in the, at least the way the episode was, was framed that I watched, was, well, you were Miss Pennsylvania 2007, and therefore, you were qualified. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and But but it was clear that like that was that was the least of your qualifications. 
in terms of actually helping him? What did, what did you draw upon yeah. uh, to help him and, and, you know, to help other people, be, you know, become themselves? Yeah, it was, it was my entire life, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I've, I've always walked to the beat of my own drum. I've always wanted to be everything I could be, you know. Um, it, it's, it, you know, and it's like when I became the beauty queen, uh, you know, I, it kind of solidified for me at 21 all of the dreams that I had, I could actually make happen just as myself. I didn't have to be a character because the idea of like, I think the idea for some actors or actresses when they're on that path is like, oh, I can live all of these experiences, um, you know, on either, you know, on camera or off camera, but nonetheless, I can live these experiences. And my whole thing is like, well, no, I actually want to live these experiences in real life as myself. I don't want to pretend them. I want to actually experience them and live them. And with all the things that I had gone through with the brain tumor, with having gone to farm school, having been a model, having been an actress, having, having had high goals as a very young kid, um, set me up for just to, to be in a place where I could even, you know, at a 20 something inspire someone else to just like go after what it is, whatever they wanted in mm. life. I, I guess thinking about it that way, that be, being a beauty queen and being a being successful by being yourself is like the ultimate proof. Like that seems like it's the place where it would be least advantageous to be yourself. And yet, you know, yeah. that, that's, if that's the winning formula there, then, you know, from, from hard to easy, it's got to be the winning formula everywhere else. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm even, even, I mean, I just, I mean, I turned 30 in November and I'm, and I'm, my goal is to just win it being me, you know, and, and whatever that I may, Hey, tomorrow I may pick up a new goal. You know what I mean? I may decide I want to run for president one day, you know what I mean? And if I hold true to that goal and, and I want that enough, then, you know, I'm going to have fun riding the wave of that. And that's, you know, that's just my motto. Like, do what you want, do what you feel, do what you're passionate about. Do something that's positive that's going to change your life and the life of someone else's for the better. You mentioned you've just moved to uh, Atlanta. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious what your, what your next, you know, couple of years goals are. Uh, you've got so, so much under your belt. You're just turned 30. You've got so much experience. Um, what's, what's calling to you? Uh, you know, I mean, I would say my personal goals definitely just rely in, uh, you know, at the end of the day, like being a personal chef, that's the business aspect of, of my life. Like I own a business, I'm a business owner and being financially responsible and being successful in a business, because that's the real thing about business. I mean, we can't ignore that. And I think a lot of things, you know, especially people in my realm, we're very whimsical, you know, and I mean, we're very whimsical <laughs> and spiritual about a lot of the things that we do, but business is business, you know, and I can't be successful at being whimsical if I'm not successful with my finances and with my actual business and being able to even be an inspiration for people in that realm, you know, being an, an independent entrepreneur being, meaning that I don't work for someone who gives me a paycheck every two weeks. Um, at least, you know, in, in, a, in a large sum and I'd have one role. I actually get a lot of checks and I do a lot of things, which makes things more difficult sometimes. But with that, uh, 
you know, proven tangible credibility of the success of my business is going to be even more of an inspiration for people to be independent and go out on their own and say no to that nine to five that they thought that they should get or could get when they graduated from college. Because, I mean, I was a film major in college. I knew that it was never going to be easy for me. I wasn't a business major and said, okay, fine, I'm going to go apply for that job and then I'm going to get that job. You know, I said, I'm going into entertainment and I want to have control and I want to be happy. And that has to come with real work, real time, real dedication, real responsibility, real organization, and real commitment to having a viable business. So me being in Atlanta is being a real business person. It's being in a city that is going to be able to support the business that I offer. Um, and then... Furthermore, just continue to build my brand, build my business. Eat, Will, or Die is an organization that I am, is more of a movement that say, I'm starting. Say, say the name of it again more slowly. Eat, Real, or Die. Eat, yes. Real, or it's Die. actually not, yeah, Eat, Real, or Die is, um, is, it started more of a social media movement or campaign that I created three years ago, actually, um, when I just, you know, really just came came to a place where it's like, I saw right in front of me very clearly one day what was happening with our world, with our food system, who was controlling what and why they were controlling it. I always had this connection to food, but I was never so political with it. Um, but then when you connect the dots, it's like, I'm sorry, I just can't let this happen. You know, I just can't sit back and allow my life to be controlled in this way and let the lives of other people who really trust our world and really trust the, the, the powers that be in that omnipresent day to, to do things for the better when they're really doing it for the worst and, and for themselves for selfish reasons. And that's not fair. Hmm. Well, I, I, so I, I, continuing. I, yeah, go ahead. No. So, I mean, just continue on with eat, will or die part of eat, will or die. And there's a program that I have called um, eat real and grow. And that is uh, picking off in uh, Westchester, Pennsylvania, at the University of Westchester, where I have a team there starting, a, uh, you know, like a, a chapter there. And the goal of that chapter is to create and support a sustainable um, uh, community garden on the campus. And then the goal is to take that to other campuses and other schools and elementary schools and high schools who don't have that. Nice. Nice. Yeah. And I, I really appreciate the links that you've made between, you know, being, being responsible as a human being around food, around food justice, around politics and entrepreneurship. Cause you know, I've, I consider myself unemployable. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was able, I was able to do a decent job as a school teacher because it was so heavily mission driven, but, but in the business world, it quickly became apparent that I could never work for anybody else. I could never do the nine to five. And, and I've just, you know, and when you jump into that, it's a really good way to discover all the ways in which you are still a child, all the ways in which you Absolutely. have magical, <laughs> magical thinking in which you have entitlements in which you are full of fear and greed and selfishness. And, and, you know, for me, the entrepreneurial journey has been at least as important as my food journey for, you know, sort of kind and really harsh feedback from the world about being a grown-up. 
Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I come from an entrepreneurial family. Um, my mom's a chef. My dad is an artist. And, um, you know, they come from very uh, strong foundations of, of what they were raised in. But, you know, I come from very, you know, free-spirited, whimsical kind of, uh, but serious and driven parents. And so I always had that edge in me. And and I come from a great home and I had great things and, you know, but I didn't have everything I wanted, you know, but, and as I've grown up and grown older, you know, I've had, there were times that I had a nine to five and I worked in restaurants that I, that my dad, that my mom didn't own or that I didn't even own. But then, you know, at 24, when I owned Soul, which was the name of my restaurant that I owned, I felt like I was 44. And I said, you know, I have this three-year plan, but I don't know if this plan is encompassing everything that actually I am passionate about and makes me feel as though I'm fulfilled. And it has been a very long six years. Mm. <laughs> it's been a very long six years, but I haven't, but I, and never one moment did I feel that I was not living. You know, I've lived and felt every second of every minute of day, month, year that has gone by from the moment that I decided that I was going to walk away from my business and I moved to Italy. And that's when I created the first incarnations of my business. My LLC is called Terra to Table. And then I was growing organic herbs from seed and I was consulting with people. I was still writing for, um, I was still writing uh, TV treatments and film treatments. And then I came back to the States and I went to NYU for producing for a little bit. And then this, I've just been on this path developing me, developing who I am as an individual, what I care about, what connects to me. Um, and what's and like everything that I do is just a part of an extension of my passions in life. That's it. That's, that's it. That is it. You know, and I'm just really thankful that I have that in me. I mean, if I, if I didn't have it in me, I'm sure I would be content at being whoever I would be otherwise. But I'm really, I, I like me and I like what I do. And, and I just, and I'm happy that the things that I enjoy in life are positive and I can help other people. Like eat real or die, eat real and grow. You know, even working with my personal chef clients, um, it's not about me, it's about them. It's about how can I help other people? You know, in my own way, I'm here as being of service, you know, and, and if I can win and be successful, in that way, then I'm good. Right. It's, it's, and, you know, it's, it's a nice um, breath of fresh air because, you know, as a, as a food activist these days, it's very easy to become pessimistic, to focus on disease, to focus on environmental problems, to focus on animal cruelty, to focus on GMOs, to, 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 to really talk about all the negatives. And I am, I am prone to that. Right. I, yeah. I, I discover, you know, I just uh, was talking to someone locally about uh, a health partnership. And before we met, he read my website and he, he wrote all these comments <laughs> about like, boy, this is really negative. And I, and I looked at it afterwards and I said, boy, he's, boy, he's right. I was in a bad mood. <laughs> and, <laughs> and for you to to be driven by it sounds like not by fear, but by passion, not by fear of missing out but by flowering of, of self-expression and service. Um, I think that that must, inf that must, that energy must inform everything, even if it's in, 
you know, in the context of fighting against a negative? Yeah, I mean, it's like if if we just focus on doing what we should do, then all those things that we're afraid of or that we feel angry about or we feel used and lied to about will change anyway. You know what I mean? Eat more plants. That means you won't eat that meat. You won't eat that burger. Those people are going to lose money on that. They're going to have to downsize their businesses. They're not going to have, you know, be able to have as much production of, you know, uh, you know, animal protein, and they're not going to raise animals for food, and we're going to end the, that suffering there. We're going to change the environment. We're going to change that, that stream off of those toxic chemicals that run into our waterways, you know, from the factory farms. And there isn't going to be so much plastic going into the ocean because we won't buy that plastic bottle. It's like everything we do the right way is going to change all the things that are happening the, the wrong way. Right. And all, and all those all those little little steps, as you said, about, you know, urban agriculture, just it doesn't seem like there's much progress uh, from moment to moment. But when you add it all up, it uh, it can be significant. Yeah. I mean, hey, it, it, it takes some time for a seed to grow. You know, that's just that's just the nature of it. I mean, you're not going to have that organic zucchini and kale and squash grow overnight. You have to be patient. And that's just with the movement in itself. You know, these gardens legit, like, really do have to physically, tangibly grow to happen. And, you know, the most we can do is set up those planter boxes, you know, make those boxes, put those pots in our windows, set up those hanging wall uh, planters and, you know, encourage more growth. And then we will grow. Nice. Uh, one of my favorite songs is... Um by Chris Smithers. Uh, I think he spent a lot of time in uh, in New Orleans. I think he grew up around New Orleans. So <laughs> coming back to the Creole influence, and he writes a song about the vegetable peddlers who used to walk down the streets, you know, um, singing their wares, you know, sweet corn, merleton. And he, he wrote a song yeah. about it uh, called No Love Today. And the last two lines are like really in keeping with what we're talking about. He says, in the end, no one can sell you what you need. You can't buy it off the shelf. You've got to grow it from the seed. It's it's absolutely true. I um, I said something last night that uh, is in the same kind of theme of that, of course, of what we're speaking about. It's, um, you know, like, Today, we're living in a society where every piece of us is currency, is for sale. Mm -hmm. Our health is for sale. What we eat is for sale. Where we live is for sale. Um, what we drive, how we get to work, our jobs are for sale. You know, everything about our existence on this planet is for sale. And the only way we will have a healthy life is if we take ownership back. Right now, we are being sold our health. People are selling our health because they're making us sick and then we have to buy medicine to make us healthy again, which isn't making us healthy anyway. When we possess it to begin with, we just have to take it back. Right. And the fact that we are so commoditized really blinds us to the fact that we are infinitely unique. 
right? Because if, if you're a commodity, yeah. if you're a pork belly or a ton of iron or a dollar bill, you're the same as every other pork belly or ton of iron or dollar bill. And I think it's one of the great fundamental tragedies of our civilization is that we don't, people aren't raised to see that they are unique, that they are of infinite worth and no amount of money can compensate right. for, for, their, exactly. for their existence or the loss of it. You're absolutely right. I mean, if take, take away the ownership and take away that commodity aspect of it. It's like prior to, prior to our existence or, or we could just say living off the grid in some capacity or, or being a farmer where you, you know, live independently. Um, yeah, there's, there's that infinity there. It's up in the air. You know what I mean? It, it, we exist within one. There's nothing attached to us. We are free, independent beings. You know, um, outside of that, or on the inside, rather, of what we what we exist in now today is is quite quite the opposite. Right, and and I really resonate with people's fear about you know having faith because I've planted seeds in the ground, and when you put a seed in the ground, you you really have to have a lot of faith to think mm-hmm. that that teeny thing in the dirt is going to produce anything like it just it, it, it can seem very unlikely from our disconnected materialistic um you know for sale perspective that there's this force in the universe that can turn that speck that little broccoli seed into into nourishment for a family yeah i mean that's that's life that's that's what it is uh you know, you just, you got to have faith. As George Michael said, you know, that's just all it is. You have to have faith. Have, it's not just faith, it's having certainty. And having certainty is when you don't have the answers in front of you, but it's, it's, being, it's being positive and knowing the outcome, even when you don't have the outcome in front of you, whether it's going to go either way. That's certainty. Certainty mm. is being certain in the uncertainty, you know. And, and that's positivity. That's seeing the light in things. That's not seeing the bad. That's just seeing the light. That's just seeing what you want. That's just, it's like, if you see your garden, if you can visualize your garden, your garden will grow. Because you will just make it happen. Huh. And you'll just run as a machine in terms of, you know, just doing what you have to do. Whether it's, oh, you see, maybe you need to um, add more nitrogen or the, the leaves are a little yellow. What do I do? You just autopilot. Okay, let's, let's do it. Let's get it done. You're not thinking about how much of a drag it is to do it. It's just a part of the process because I mean, farming is not easy, you know what I mean? But it's not that difficult. It's just the process. It is what it is, you know, but when you visualize your garden being, uh, you know, successful and flourishing, then it will. Right. And I think a lot of people mistake that for mystical thinking. When, uh, yes. When... No, you actually, yes, the secret isn't a secret. I mean, the secret is that you actually do have to manifest. But a part of that manifestation is, is physically doing things. You can't just sit in a, on a stool somewhere in a corner and expect all this magic to happen. You have to get in the game. Right. And uh, I think that's that's the gift that I hear you bringing is a sense of certainty in the midst of that uncertainty that I think is inspiring people ev- everywhere you go to uh, to raise their game and, and be of service. So uh, 
Samantha Carrie Johnson, thank you so much for taking an hour out of your incredibly busy and fruitful life to, to share your story. Thank you. No, I'm so honored that you even asked me. Anything I can do to help and spread the word of eating real and dying or dying rather and, and you know, just being more open and positive about the success of of us as a people on on Earth is is I'm willing to do it. Right on. It's uh, it's great having you as an ally. Thank you. Likewise. <laughs> Be well. Thank you. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron and donate some money to the running of the show. You can go to plantyourself.com and on the sidebar, there is a donate feature. You can also share this with friends, share it on social media, and leave a review on iTunes and some stars that helps other people find out about the show. In garden news, we had our first couple of frosts this week, so we've officially switched from summer garden to fall garden. The little greens seedlings, the cruciferous vegetables, the broccoli, the kale, the collards, the maruba santo, the mustard greens are all incongruously pushing their way up, these tender green young shoots pushing their way up through the fall soil with overcast skies, with frozen nights, and so whatever in your life is green and tender and ultimately nourishing, care for it, water it, protect it from the elements. And if you're having trouble having faith in its eventual growth, then get outside and look to the garden and look to nature for inspiration. And as always, be well, my friends.